Welcome. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. We are continuing our series this morning on the Gospel of Matthew. And if you haven't been here with us, we've been teaching through this book since December. That's, yeah, we love, we love this. Like a speedboat slowly driving over the water, we have been working verse by verse through this book, taking our time, trying to get a sense of God's primary message to us through this incredible account of Jesus' life. And by the way, we're doing this on purpose because we believe God's word is powerful. Amen? That as we read it and study it and reflect on it, the Holy Spirit will use God's word to draw people to salvation and to teach us to follow Jesus more faithfully. This is why we primarily teach through books of the Bible verse by verse. We think God's word is holy. And today, we come to one of those passages that's just tough. It's a tough passage. If we weren't teaching through this book, we might never address it. We might skip it or ignore it or not even think about it. It's just one of those hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is like the friend that you bring to a party, and, and, and you bring him to the party, and everyone's hanging out, having a good time, and then the friend says something, and the, the music stops. Everybody perks their head up. And they're like, what the? Like, what just happened? And some people are fascinated and drawn by what Jesus is saying, and some people are offended by what Jesus says. He's the most polarizing figure in the history of the world. That means something. And so as he speaks, we are drawn in. It's curious then. And so the thing that Jesus is going to say to us today is, is this. There, there is a sin that is unforgivable. Let me say it again. There is a sin that is unforgivable. And the record stops playing and everybody perks up and everybody's like, what the? Uh, what is that mean? I mean, that doesn't sound like Jesus. I mean, I thought he forgave all sins. And there's some of you who are worry warts who are like, I hope I didn't do that, whatever that sin is. And I'm a little bit curious about that. And so I've had people come to my office throughout the years who have been anxious and afraid and fearful that they have somehow crossed a line into a sin that God is unable to forgive. And so we need to talk about this. We need to deal with what God's word actually says, because I think there's, there's two things going on here. There's both this loving, encouraging word, and then there's this gracious warning that he gives us in this passage. And so we're talking about the un forgivable, unpardonable sin. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into it, okay? Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you that we get to be a part of something that people have been doing for 2,000 years, that Sean's right. This is a proof of the existence of God, the fact that the church of Jesus Christ, despite all of its warts, despite every horrific thing that's happened in the name of Jesus, you said you would build your church, and you're still doing it today. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and open the eyes of your people, that you would help us to see truth, that you would encourage those of us who need encouragement, that you would convict those of us that need conviction, and that you would magnify your name. That's the purpose of our gathering here today. Nothing else can work, but if the saints lift up the name of Jesus, then our job is done here today. And so come and be here with us as we open your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, do this with me. Open your Bibles. It's one of these things. Or if you have a phone and have an app, 
you can open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. We're looking at verses 22 through 32, and I'm going to read the passage for you, and then we'll talk about it, okay? So, so here's what God's Word says, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. Not surprising. That happens quite a bit, right? So, so that, that man then spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed. They were amazed by what Jesus had done and said, Can this be the son of David? But the Pharisees heard it, and they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God... Has come upon you? Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, because of everything we just said, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is God's word. Amen? Okay, we're done. See you guys later. No no big deal. Okay, as we look at this passage, I think there's this beautiful movement that we see, and and that's what I I want to give you here this morning. The first thing I see in this passage is this amazing authority, an amazing authority that Jesus is displaying. This has been one of the primary themes that Matthew has been developing in this book, and he wants us to know that Jesus has authority. He will end this gospel, Matthew 28, 18. What will he say? All authority and heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go make disciples. The, the, the theme of this book is that Jesus has authority because he is the Son of God. And throughout this thing, the, it, Matthew's been showing us that Jesus demonstrates his authority in two ways, in his words and in his works. Jesus came teaching and proclaiming a new word, a new message about the arrival of the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount lays out the essentials of this kingdom. Jesus has come to bring a deeper righteousness, a heart-level righteousness to you and to me as we accept him, checking religious boxes off and external behavioral management is not good enough anymore. If you have your list of things that you have to do for God to love you, you are missing the point of the kingdom of economy that Jesus is laying out. He is not interested in sparkly teeth, everything's great, your best life right now kind of stuff. He's not interested in in, in a whitewashed tomb that is sparkly on the outside but decaying and dead on the inside. Instead, he comes and says, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a new heart a righteousness that starts inside and works itself out. That's New Covenant, New Testament spirituality. Ezekiel 
36, 26, and 27. This is kind of the, one of the key Old Testament passages that points forward to the New Testament fulfillment of the New Covenant. So if you haven't ever read this or studied it, write this down. This is an important passage in the Bible. It says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove your heart of stone Uh, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The kingdom of God comes inside. The Holy Spirit comes inside of you, and he gives you a new heart. Your heart is this stone statue that Aslan comes and breathes on. It comes to life, if you've ever read Chronicles of Narnia. Your heart is this rock, and he comes and he animates it, and now it is a heart of flesh. That is what he has come to bring to us, access to the Holy Spirit who indwells us and lives inside of us. And then we walk out our righteousness because of what he has worked in us. And then to authenticate what he's been teaching, Matthew shows us that Jesus has the power to back up what he's been saying. He does a few things. Jesus calms a storm. I don't know about you. I don't do that. That's not something that I do on a regular basis. Jesus tells the story of a centurion's servant who's healed just by Jesus saying, he's not even in the same town, healed. Jesus tells the story of a woman who's been sick for years, and she says, if I could just touch the edge of his coat, then I will be healed. And you know what happens? She comes and she reaches out and she touches the edge of his coat and she's healed. Jesus tells the story of Jairus' sick daughter who's dying. And then Jesus shows up and everybody's wailing and weeping because the girl had died. And Jesus comes and he reaches down into death and he pulls her out. He has the, the power to back up the things that he's been saying. This is not just some guy that's talking a big game. You ever been around that guy? The guy who talks a big game but really can't back it up? That's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. He consistently shows that he has a unique authority to teach what he's been teaching and to do what he's been doing. And, and one of the things that he does here that we've seen him do on a few occasions is that he casts demons out of people. Uh, that's what our text says today. There was a man who was blind and mute and he couldn't see and he couldn't talk. And, and, and in this case, it tells us the cause was a demon. He couldn't speak. He couldn't talk. He couldn't see. And the demon was the cause. And we're told in verse 22 that Jesus healed him, casting the demon out of him, causing him to see and to speak and then it tells us the people were amazed, astonished. They, they couldn't believe their eyes. This is the only time this word is used in all of the Gospel of Matthew. The people were flabbergasted. Something unique is happening right now. They are seeing something unfold before them that nobody's ever seen before. This guy's different. And so they asked the question, could this be the son of of David. Could this be David's son? Now, a couple of interesting, interesting things to note here. The term son of David is another title for the Messiah. There was this expectation among Jewish people that a descendant of David would come and reestablish his throne and reign on it forever, ruling the people of Israel and being a light unto the Gentiles. The Jewish people believed that would happen. This is known as the Davidic covenant, and we see that in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13. We're not going to go there, but if you want to do a fascinating study, study the covenants of the Bible. 
This is the, the promise of the coming Messiah. And so the son of David is this expected Messiah who is to come. Second, Jewish people also had this expectation that the Messiah would be someone who could heal blindness. Isn't that interesting? That uniquely of the Messiah, unique among all other people, he will come and heal people of blindness, spiritual blindness and perhaps physical blindness. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, they would read passages like this. I am the Lord. I have called you Messiah in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations or the Gentiles to open the eyes of the blind. It's fascinating. Right before this passage in Matthew 12, he quotes another passage from Isaiah 42. There's something happening here, right? Something's going, he's making some kind of argument here. This is speaking about physical and spiritual blindness. And so the Messiah will come and he will heal, he will restore sight to the blind. And so when Jesus comes healing blind people, it, it makes sense then that the people say, could this be the son of David? Could this be David's son? No other person in the New Testament is recorded healing a blind person, only Jesus. Isn't that amazing? You might say, well, Paul's scales fell off. His... No, no, no. Jesus is the only one who healed blind people. I think the writers were very intentional about what they were doing here. He is Messiah. And it sounds like the crowd was a little bit confused here because they were expecting someone maybe a little more Davidic. They were expecting this, this warrior, king, giant slayer, this guy who would come and lead armies. And what they got was a homeless, itinerant rabbi who would travel around and he would spend his time with the most poor and vulnerable. He would love the most ostracized and he would rebuke the most religious. Something wasn't computing for them. Is, could this be the son of David? Interesting thing here. David is the only person recorded in the Old Testament having cast a demon out of someone as well. And so there's some things happening. David would play his harp and the, the, the demons would be driven out of King Saul, we read in the Old Testament. And so he has this amazing authority as the son of David, as the Messiah, the anointed one, to come and bring his kingdom to the earth through word and through works, and we're seeing that unfold in, not only in the life of the blind man. He doesn't say, the kingdom has now come to this blind man. He says, the kingdom has come to you, all of you. Okay, next. The Pharisees see this whole thing unfurling, and they don't like it, right? They, they, they hear what the crowds of people are saying, and it bothers them, which is, which is really amazing, right? You have two different reactions of people who are seeing the same things unfold, two different perspectives in the middle of this moment. Something is different here. Something's happening. What is going on in the crowds of people who are amazed and the Pharisees who get a little irritated. And so Jesus lays out what I'm going to call a critical choice at this point. This is our second point. He's inviting us to make a critical choice. Matthew 12, 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, that is the people clamoring and calling Jesus the son of David, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this guy's doing this anyway. I mean, I don't know why you guys are making a big deal out of this. He's, he's just a witchcraft magician. What's going on here? And so the crowds are astonished, and the Pharisees are 
looking for every excuse to write Jesus off. And I want you to notice that, that, that they don't deny that he did a miracle. They don't say, this miracle is made up, and let me show you the five reasons why this guy actually wasn't blind before. They, they, they can't explain what Jesus is doing. All they, all, all they do is subvert his miracle by saying, well, it's by some weird demonic power that Jesus is actually doing this. They're trying to undermine his miracle by saying his power comes from the prince of darkness. The name Beelzebul literally means Lord of the flies, Lord of the, the filth heap. And, and in Jesus' day, it was like a, a, a slang term that people used for Satan so they wouldn't actually have to, to say the name Satan. It's, you know, he who must not be named, right? And so, so the Pharisees reason among themselves that the only way Jesus can do the mighty works he's doing is by the power of Satan. That's what they say interesting thing here as well. There's another Pharisee elsewhere in the Gospels who sees all of the same things, but he has a different reaction. He's seeing the same data, but his heart is different. You guys remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night at first, and he says this, John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs, these miracles, these mighty works that you do unless God is with you him. So you have one group saying, you're doing a bunch of stuff, and it's by the power of Satan. And you have another Pharisee who's saying, this is obviously God. I want you to hold on to that idea there, because I think this relates back to this hard saying of Jesus that we're going to come back to at the end. You can have two different crowds of people who see the same things and come to totally different conclusions. That still happens today, right? It still happens today. And the difference isn't what is happening externally. The difference is the condition of your heart. Are you open? Are you able to receive? Can you see what God is doing? Or have you shut him out? Okay, we'll come back to that at the end. And so Jesus goes on to make a few arguments against the Pharisees. that They're accusing him of being a demon guy, a, a Satan guy. And so he says, you know what? Let me tell you why that doesn't make sense. Jesus uses some logic. Three arguments. The first argument he makes is this. Why would Satan work against himself. That doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan subvert his own goals? He's already, ha- he's already demonizing this guy. Why would he use me to heal him? He, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against him. How will his kingdom endure? And, and Abraham Lincoln famously quotes this passage two years before he became president, seven years before the beginning of the Civil War. And, 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 and it, the, the idea is in all spheres of reality— that if you have a kingdom that is fighting amongst themselves, eventually that will destroy the kingdom. Jesus is applying that logic to Satan right here. When you are divided amongst yourself, you can only endure for so long before you bring about your own destruction, just like America almost did during the Civil War. Maybe just like America's doing right now. I don't know. You know I'll leave that. I'll let you chew on that. Why would Satan let Jesus cast out demons and free a man who is already under his control? Next argument. By whose power do you drive out demons, Jesus says, Matthew 12, 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus wasn't the only one during this time who was doing exorcisms. Exorcism was actually a booming business. You made great money. It's like it was being a vendor back then, right? You're, you're doing a great job being an exorcist at this point. And so, some people were effective 
in their exorcisms, and some people were frauds. And so it seems like there were some Jewish exorcists that were doing some good things, and some people who were frauds. The frauds would use these complex incantations and magical charms and even some visual effects, glitter and smoke, to try to drum up business. And I want you to notice that, that all Jesus has to do to cast a demon out is say, out. Just his word, just his authority, no complex spells, no, you know, there's no, you picture Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal and all the things that they're having to do. And Jesus just says, no more, done, just by his word. And what Jesus seems to be saying here is that, you know, you have guys on your team who are casting out demons. Some of, their, some of them are effective. Um, how, by whose power are they casting demons out? So you can't accuse me of something without looking at yourselves in the mirror, Jewish exorcist guys. And you're going to make those guys mad. I'm going to let them be the judge of you. You're going to upset the business if you keep talking like this. And so I'll let, I'll let you guys talk that about. Last point, Jesus says this, doesn't my power prove my authority? Matthew 12, 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is giving this parable here to make a point. A tyrant or a strong man would have lived in a, a near impenetrable fortress at this time. It's just a picture high walls and high gates and moats and you can't get into the fortress. And before you could rob or plunder a strong man, you got to get into his house. And then when you get into his house, before you can start plundering or stealing his stuff, you got to tie the guy up. He's still a strong man, but when you tie him up, you prevent him from being able to do what he was able to do before. It renders him powerless. And so Jesus is saying in this parable that Satan is the strong man. The enemy is the Beelzebul is the strong man. He's the tyrant. The strong man's house is the kingdom of the world. It's this world that we live in. Remember at, at, at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and Satan takes him up onto this high mountain. He says, Jesus, look out at all the kingdoms of the world. I will give these to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus passes the test and says, I will only do what the Father wants me to do. He rejects Satan. You ever think, how did Satan have the right to even say that at that point? It's because he is the ruler of this world. Our world is his kingdom. John 14, 30, Jesus calls the prince of this world. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 calls Satan the god of this age. This world is his kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is, I have entered the strong man's house, and I have bound him. I have tied him up. Now, when did that binding occur? It's an interesting question, right? When did the binding... Is Jesus talking to this crowd of people before or after the cross? It's before the cross. Yeah, Jesus is not... He's not made his way to the cross yet. And so Jesus has said the strong man is already bound. Here's, here's what I think the binding means. Here's what, when I think the binding has occurred. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, when Jesus did what Adam could not do, when Jesus did not sin in that moment, there, something happened in the kingdom of darkness that tied up Satan. 
Something happened that rendered sin less effective. It bound him in a way that one day will be fully realized in eternity. But then on the cross, the penalty was, was, was fully paid by Jesus. So I think this binding started in the wilderness temptation when Jesus did what Adam couldn't do, and then it was consummated in the cross when he paid the penalty for all sin. Jesus bound the enemy. And so right now, Satan is like the Nazis on D-Day. The Nazis on D-Day. D-Day was June 6, 1944. And D-Day was not the end of World War II, was it? Was D-Day the end of World War II? No. You need to read history, okay? I wasn't alive then. Maybe some of you were. Teach us, please, okay? D-Day was not the end of World War II, but D-Day was the decisive blow that led to the end. The Nazis were never able to recover after that. The Allies had established a beachhead, but Victory Day, V-Day, was not until... May 8th, 1945. And so there's this in-between space where the battle has been won, the victory has been secured, the kingdom has a beachhead, but it's not over yet. There, he's, he's not as powerful, but he's not powerless, okay? So Jesus is stronger than the strong. What's the plunder in the story? It's people. It's you and me and my family, and every prisoner of war tied up in shackles in the house of the strong man. 1 Corinthians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in, him, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He went on this rescue mission. To, 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 he, he broke into the fortress and he has brought us back to his house, into the kingdom. We are no longer subject to the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus is making all of these arguments, pointing to Matthew twelve thirty, saying, you have a choice then that you have to make. You have a choice. And the choice is this. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What he's saying is, there's no neutrality here. You cannot be neutral in this spiritual battle. There are some things in your life, there are some things where it's prudent and wise and good to remain neutral. When, when, uh, no, I'm not going to go there. Never mind. Filter, filter. But there is no spiritual Sweden. There is no spiritual place where we can remain neutral. That Jesus just doesn't give us that option. You're either with me or you're against me. You're for me or you're not. And what these guys are doing is that Jesus is doing these miraculous things, things that nobody had ever done, and they say, that must be Satan. And and, and Jesus is saying, you are saying that I'm on Satan's team, but the very words that you are using are indicating that you are actually in the wrong kingdom. And so you better pay attention. You better listen. Neutrality is not an option. That is the clear choice he gives us. Okay, so he's laid out his arguments. We've seen his, his amazing authority. This clear choice is on the table now. And then he ends by giving what I want to call a, a gracious warning, a warning full of grace and mercy and tenderness, but it's still a warning. Matthew 12, 31 and 32, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Okay, before we get into the content of the warning, I want to point out a couple of graces that I see in this passage. First, Jesus is not looking at this crowd of Pharisees and saying, you have committed this unpardonable sin. You are damned to hell for eternity. He is not laying out before them the fact that they have crossed some line. He is warning them in this moment. This is not him saying, I can't believe you guys did it. You finally crossed the line. He's merely saying there is a sin such as this, and if you're not careful, you will cross that line. That is a grace of God that he warns us, isn't it? That's God's grace. He is warning them that if they do not reevaluate their life and recognize the obvious work of the Holy Spirit, that they are in danger of committing such a sin. It's God's grace that warns us, that pleads with us, that scratches at us, that woos us, that draws us before we keep walking down a road of destruction. Have you ever had that in your life? God's grace by the Spirit waving his arms at you. You're on a train. He's on the train track waving his arms saying, don't keep going. The bridge is out. The bridge is out. It's God's grace that pleads with us, that draws us. Because you see, contrary to what many people think about God, God is not some cosmic principle waiting for you to do something wrong so he could whack you and punish you and send you to detention. That's not God. God is not some, some task, the Egyptian taskmaster waiting for you to do something wrong so he can take away your straw and make your life harder. That is not who he is. Yahweh, remember how Yahweh reveals himself to Moses? When the people ask, who is this God? And Yahweh reveals his name. He says, my name is Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He starts there. That's who he is. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The Greek word there for all, you know what it means? All. It's really complicated. It means all. God wants all people to be saved. God desires that no one should be perish. There is a graciousness in this warning. He is making space and offering the kingdom and even warning those of us who have rejected him up to that moment. He's warning them, if you just turn back right now, there's still time to repent. There's still time to believe. He's warning them so that they don't take the train and go off the bridge. That's grace, isn't it? It's the grace of God. Don't miss that. There's another grace here I want want to point out real quick, and it's this. We can sometimes be so anxious and uncertain about our sin, and, 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 and we miss something significant here, thinking about the unpardonable sin and all these things that are going on, and we miss the fact that he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Don't miss that. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. It means that there is no sin. There is no blasphemy that God is not willing to forgive. 
Okay, what about getting a, a, what about getting a DUI? Will God forgive that? Will God forgive the DUI you got when you were in high school? Or, or what about loving money more than God? Materialism, the sin that everybody struggles with that nobody confesses. What about loving money more than God? Will God forgive that? Yeah, God will forgive that. What about cheating on your wife? Can God forgive that? What about having an abortion? What about spiritual pride? What about experimenting with homosexuality? What about divorce? What about every other scarlet letter that we sometimes try to hang on each other? Can God forgive all of those things? Everybody say yes. Yes. Every sin will be forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. There is extravagance in that word. Every, it even says this. It says, even those who speak against the Son of Man, even those who blaspheme the name of Jesus, even those who take Jesus and they berate him and they battle him and they call him all kinds of things, the ones who cast lots for his clothes and they beat him, he says those people can be forgiven. Jesus did it himself. He's hanging on the cross. And what's he say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Even cursing the name of Jesus. Can you believe that? He can forgive that. Every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. And the scriptures tell us that we have access to that forgiveness through belief and repentance. Belief and repentance. John 1.12, but to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back from your sins that they may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from God. I don't know about you, times of refreshing sounds good to me. I like that. It sounds like a good thing. There is a receiving and a believing that has to occur and it ultimately leads to repentance, which is always a turning from something and a turning to something, turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven if we believe and repent, and trusting the name of Jesus. Okay, so what does it mean that every sin and blasphemy but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven? What does it mean? What does this passage mean? A couple of things, a couple of things to point out. Number one, I don't think that this is something that you can do by accident. It's not like you can watch the Razorbacks lose as badly as they lost yesterday and then accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Or you don't wake up in the middle of the night and stub your toe and then suddenly, oh, I crossed some line. I'll never come back now. This is not something that you can do by accident. And I have had people come to my office just in fear and anxiety that they have done something that has put them outside of God's grace. And let me just say it like this. You can't accidentally condemn yourself eternally any more than you can accidentally save yourself eternally. You can't accidentally condemn yourself any more than you can accidentally save yourself, okay? So I don't think that that's what this passage is teaching. Number two, this is not a specific action or behavior. 
Let me, let me tell you what I mean here. If you are carrying around some list of sins in your pocket that you think puts you outside of the grace of God, you're missing the point here. If you have a, well, I know you listed some other things earlier, Josh, but there are a few things that you don't want to say in front of a crowd like this. And what about those? No, no, no. If you think that there is some specific action or behavior in your history that has put you outside of God's grace, you are missing the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ means you have been forgiven of every sin. Stop making lists. Stop it. Stop letting the videos play back in your head of bad behaviors and bad decisions and bad things that you've done in the past. If you are in Christ, those things are gone. You are new. You are forgiven. He has redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb. He has rejuvenated your heart. Your heart is new by the Holy Spirit if you believe. Stop thinking that there are certain things in your life that will cause God to unforgive you. You didn't propitiate yourself. You can't unpropitiate yourself. You didn't save yourself. You can't unsave yourself. Okay? How dare we think that our sin is somehow greater than his forgiveness? The unforgivable sin is not a specific action, but rather an attitude or a flippancy toward the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me unpack this. The Jewish teaching, according to Jewish teaching, the Holy Spirit had two main functions. The Holy Spirit brought God's truth to men and women, and the Holy Spirit enabled those men and women to recognize and understand his truth. The Holy Spirit brought truth and enabled us to recognize that truth. And Jesus affirms this same idea. John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who goes out the Father. He will testify about me. John 16, 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of sin. He testifies about Jesus. And what's happening here is that this group of Pharisees is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is standing before them, clearly showing himself as someone who has the authority to say the things he's been saying and the authority to do the things he's been doing. And they are just totally missing it. They're missing it. They have hardened their hearts so much that they can't see what is so obvious to a group of poor people in a crowd or to Nicodemus who came at night. Something is going on in their hearts. I've heard people say that if I could just see Jesus perform the miracles that he performed in the New Testament, then I would believe. Then I would believe. Yet, we see in the Bible crowds of people who saw and believed and crowds of people who saw and didn't believe. And so it can't be about the external evidence. It can't just be about the external evidence. It has to be about something going on in your heart and your mind. And so is your heart hardened to the work of the Holy Spirit? The person who does not receive the work of the Spirit cannot come to Jesus. It's not that they won't be forgiven. They can't be because they have cut off the very channel from which God has given us to receive grace 
and mercy and repentance. This is why you can speak against the name of Jesus. You can speak against Jesus like Paul did. Paul breathed murderous threats against Christians and still be saved because someday the Holy Spirit might knock you on, off your horse on the way to, to Damascus. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't speaking against the name of Jesus like Paul did. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be rejecting that moment when the Holy Spirit was drawing him in. And if you do that consistently and persistently and consciously over the course of your life, what ends up happening is you harden your heart and then you cease to be able to hear from him. Is this making sense? Are you tracking the only true unpardonable sin, in my opinion, is unbelief, is unbelief. To not believe in Jesus, and when you cut off the Holy Spirit from your life, you are cutting off God's mechanism for helping you believe, okay? Okay, so what's the lesson for us? A couple of things here. Number one, don't worry. I love that that's a, a theme throughout all of Scripture. If you are one of those folks in this room that has been worried about this, that has anxiety or fear about this, that you've committed some sin, I would say this, the very fact that you are afraid is a good sign. It, it's indicative that the Holy Spirit is not done with you and that you are conscious of your sin and that you're conscious of your need for redemption. And you may or may not be a Christian in that moment, but at least he is not apathetic towards you. If God, if, if God was apathetic towards you, you wouldn't even care, okay? So don't worry. Number two, don't harden your heart. Oh, we need to hear this message. Anyone who is flippant about their sin is in danger of developing a hard heart like these Pharisees. They saw it. Jesus was right in front of them. Oh my gosh, right in front of them. And when our hearts become hard, we can't hear or follow the leading of the Spirit. Sin plugs our ears, plugs our ears up, and persistent, unconfessed sin destroys our eardrums. It destroys our eardrums. We can't hear anymore. And so my exhortation for you is if you are caught up in some sin, God doesn't want us to have anxiety, but he also doesn't want us to be flippant because you don't know when persistent, unconfessed sin will remove your ability to hear clearly from the Holy Spirit. And there's a warning in the scriptures about this apostasy, about having once experienced the truth of the gospel, having once experienced the community of faith, and then turning your back from it. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. You can either persist in faith or persist in unbelief. And there are implications on both sides of that. Number three, don't reject him. Don't reject him. If you're here this morning and you're in that I don't care position or if you have written Jesus off, you are in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you have said, you know what, I, I kind of like the Jesus stuff, but I don't like all of it, and so I'm just going to keep him on a shelf over here with all the other things that I like, my, my, my career and and my self-value, and my self-esteem. And, and, and if you are, have just gotten to this place of apathy with Jesus, 
what I want to encourage you in is that God has orchestrated a thousand things in your life to help point you to him. God has orchestrated a million things in your life to woo you and draw you by his spirit. And if you ignore those things, if you go la, 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 there's, no, there's nothing left. He is scratching at you and he is wooing you. And, and through your, even your painful circumstances, you might say, well, you, you haven't lived through what I've lived through. I haven't. But we all have pain and we all have suffering and we all have missed expectations and we all have children that get sick and that die and we all lose people we love dearly. But maybe, just maybe, God's grace is in the middle of the pain as much as it is in all the good things that happen in our lives. And he is wooing us and drawing us in those circumstances. Don't reject him. Don't reject him. That is the invitation of the gospel. Some of us here today need to hear this call and take it seriously to not be flippant about sin. Some of us need to hear the call that you don't have to be anxious about your sin anymore because Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Amen? Have we seen his amazing authority? Have we made the critical choice? Have we heard his gracious warning to listen to his spirit's voice? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which, oh, it just digs at us. Oh, man. You just grab us and you, you dive into the middle of our broken hearts and you swim around and you are doing that in people in this room. And I pray that you would inspire conviction, encouragement, life, that new life would spring up in this place. Lord, may we not fear for you are a great savior. And may we not be flippant, for you are a holy God. And would you help us to take this gracious warning seriously, that if we persist in these, these, these attitudes, these hearts, Lord, that there's nothing left. There's nothing, nothing left. So thank you for wooing and bring to mind right now for these people all of the ways that you have been wooing them. All the circumstances and I pray that they would respond in Jesus' name. Amen.